On this episode of Water Flying, we're going to discuss our recent advocacy trip to the state of Alaska. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Water Flying. As a lot of you know, Alaska obviously has one of the largest concentrations of seaplane pilots in the country. Matter of fact, number two, only behind the state of Florida. But it does have the largest active seaplane community, and it also has the largest number of seaplanes. And as anyone who has spent time in Alaska knows, the prevailing opinion among residents uh, in Alaska is that little that occurs in the lower 48 affects them. Uh, they just seem to have an attitude there that, um, you know, they live on an island and, and the lower 48 is full of all the problems of the lower 48. And Alaskans uh, have a beautiful state of mind in many ways that um, they're Alaskans. And uh, if it doesn't happen in rural Alaska, it doesn't affect them. Um, so for this very reason, historically, it's been very difficult for the Seaplane Pilots Association to establish uh, a real solid presence in the state. And in the last few years, uh, in the uh, 12 years that I've been uh, director of the association and even working up to the period uh, where I became the executive director, SPA has really been making a much more concerted effort to spend time in Alaska, giving safety presentations, attending aviation events, meeting with the pilots and the operators and the state and federal officials, working with the FAA. And uh, we're just coming off of a trip uh, where three of our board members joined myself and Carter Clay, who uh, works in the office here with us. Uh, crisscrossing Alaska and working advocacy in the state. So I'm real pleased to join, uh, be joined by Harry Shannon, one of our board members, an absolute amazing source of wisdom on all things seaplanes, <laughs> who I'm honored to spend time with and get to uh, work with uh, within the organization. And so I'd like to, number one, thank Harry for joining us to take time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to be here, Steve. We had a wonderful trip, and uh, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so uh, Harry is a busy guy, uh, and he also, through decades and decades of experience in the seaplane community, has is a real good person to have a finger on the pulse and the temperature of the community. And I think that's one of the things I've enjoyed about taking you. We've been on half a dozen of these trips to Alaska, uh, and you've really been able to provide your feedback in a unique way. Well, the, these these trips are eye-opening on, on many, many levels. Um, in, in some ways, you're absolutely correct about what happens in Alaska is unique to Alaska. <laughs> Last year, I made a trip up there of, of my own and, and did some Alaska flying. And all of this was extremely educational as to the, 
the uniqueness of that environment. And with the, the 50 hours I flew in Alaska, I realized that I just barely got my toe in the water of what it is to fly in Alaska because you can go 100 miles, you're in a completely different environment, a completely different flight situation. It's, it's, it's truly, truly a unique, wide-open environment that, that exists up there. Yeah, and I don't want to uh, kind of gloss over that. Uh, before we j- jump into this trip, uh, that was a major trip. You literally flew uh, your Turbo Renegade from Bartow, Florida. Bartow to, I think it was North Memphis, Billings, Montana, Cuntback, Montana, up the uh, Alcan to uh, Whitehorse, Skagway, Juneau, Anchorage, Homer. Uh, we stayed in Homer nearly a week doing day trips out of Homer. Uh, and all the, the glacier flights and all that wonderful stuff uh, that's uh, up there. Well, we, we, we actually did um, our own own flight planning and that, that sort of thing. I had a great planner with me. Uh, there were two of us on the trip. It was, it was tremendous. Um, our kind of bucket list was to land in a volcano <laughs> on a lake in a lake. <laughs> and we, we managed to, uh, to get that done. And, uh, we realized, and we were out, I was out 21 days. We did not have an off day. Wow. We flew every day. So, yeah. uh, it was it was quite the trip. I think that okay. So that's going to be a podcast to do in the future. Is talking about twenty one days flying, uh, and, and I mean now you've made it to all the way to Anchorage, and you still have to come back. Uh, that is a cross country and a seaplane of such epic proportion. Do you know how many miles? I know you flew like one hundred and twenty. I flew in the airplane one hundred and two hours, one hundred two, one hundred three hours. In 21 days. So 11,000 miles, something like 11,000 miles. Yeah. That's epic. (laughs) So uh, hats off to you for that. And for, you know, most of us probably dream of doing an adventure like that. Uh, I'm so happy of the adventures that I've done, and that's when I haven't. So uh, as we've been talking, uh, I I am threatening to do that in the Super Cup. In many ways, Steve. (laughs) That adventure is a little bit like having children. If you wait until you're ready to have that adventure, you're never going to do it. So yeah. at some point in time, you have to to say, we're going to go and and do it. And I'm so glad we did. Oh, and I'm glad you did. And I can't wait to uh, take the Super Cub on a similar adventure. And I'd love to have the Super Cub based in Alaska, where we could commute back and forth and go do some more flying, but that's a 13-hour, even by airlines, that's a 13-hour travel day at minimum uh, each way. So it's it's uh, it's really up there. People don't realize it's it's a big deal to get to Alaska. Yeah, it is. You really you have to work you have to work <laughs> at it. <laughs> so uh, again, I want to really stress: um, we go up there with a very aggressive agenda. Uh, for the Seaplane Pilots Association and the Seaplane Foundation. Uh, we have been going, I, I can't, as long as the Alaska Airmen's uh, Great Alaska Aviation Gathering has been going on, the Seaplane Pilots Association has been participating in it. I know I started going up there around 2003. 
uh, and I've been going up every year since with only two years exceptions. One year I wasn't able to make it, and then the second year was the COVID year. Out of the, the 20 years of going there, I've missed two years where I haven't made it there, and many of the years I've gone at least twice a year. Uh, but what I've been proud of is we used to just go up for the trade show historically when, when I can remember what the SPA presence was before I was the executive director up there. And I really felt compelled to make a greater impact and to engage the community more, knowing that this was the largest concentration of seaplanes and the largest active concentrated population of seaplane pilots. And, and I feel like we had a gap there. And while the Seaplane Pilots Association had been engaged in the safety seminars, the preseason safety seminars uh, since 1983 that John Pratt started, our field director in Alaska and also board member, we needed to do more. And so we started working with the FAA, and uh, you've been a part of a lot of those, those increased activities where we started doing safety seminars in Alaska, in, in Anchorage, outside of the uh, Alaska Airmen Show. And then we started expanding territory, going up into Fairbanks and working with the Fairbanks uh, FISDO uh, to coordinate increased training activity. And this year, we set the bar even higher uh, because um, we, we started doing sweatchair training and things like that. So we're just going to walk through what one of these advocacy trips look like and uh, talk about uh, in detail, I guess, a little bit more about some of the stops and activities along the way. Yeah, that, that's, let's take a look at that agenda as that, as that trip developed. Your trip actually started a few days before mine, but we, we met up. And, and uh, let's take a look at that, Steve, see where it goes. Okay, so day one, uh, Monday, April 24th. Uh, Carter and I blast out of Winter Haven, Florida, go to Orlando to get on the road with like five 70-pound suitcases in hand uh, because of uh, Carter's military status and, and my frequent flyer status. We can take a lot more stuff on the airlines where the, the association doesn't have to pay and the members don't have to pay to ship it. So we go lugging uh, everything from podcast gear to cameras to inventory uh, for the trade show and, uh, oh, PFDs uh, to do the training. So all that goes with us. So like five full-size suitcases and, and our backpacks and everything else. And we go to Orlando and, of course, mid-afternoon flight, as I predicted, uh, there would be a thunderstorm over Orlando International Airport and we had a ground stop while we were in the middle of refueling the airplane. So um, we were stuck for an extra hour and a half in Orlando which caused us to miss our connection in Minneapolis uh, to Anchorage. So we ended up spending an unexpected night in Minneapolis. And on a very tight schedule, uh, that really impacted us because we actually didn't get into Anchorage till midday the next day. And um, with the schedule, we were already concerned. We had too much to do. Um, so we had to immediately hit the ground in Anchorage and run uh, to get uh, scuba tanks and mouthpieces for the heed bottle training that we were going to be doing later in the week. Start meeting with the FAA, uh, get into the hotel, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, just start orienting ourselves, getting on the ground. Yeah, this is just, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching your itinerary there and, and knowing, uh, you know, literally you hit the ground running and you, uh, you put that package together with the, uh, the flight delay. So, yeah. Uh, I don't think people I, I talk about, I hit the ground with my heels on fire. And I think you've <laughs> probably witnessed that probably more than a lot of people. But I literally, I mean, that is the case. I mean, when we go on these trips, I feel obligated to do everything we can uh, to make them productive. Well, it, it's it's evident from the schedule that, that you had. And you put it together because now you actually made everything and you almost got the chair into the pool at Anchorage. (laughs) Let's hear about that. Yeah, so uh, Wednesday, we have to go rent a truck to get the sweat chair because we're going to be responsible for transporting it uh, up to Fairbanks later in the week. So we have to go get a truck, and we get ready um, to conduct a workshop on Wednesday evening uh, at the Anchorage FISDO. And again, hats off to... uh, everyone at the Anchorage FISDO for helping us put this together. Um, And also the fact that this had been, I think there's some backstory with this whole uh, sweat chair training and water survival training that we did this year. And the fact that I have been wanting to bring this kind of training to Alaska for at least five years. And it's taken five years to make it a reality. And thanks to both the Anchorage FISDO, the Fairbanks FISDO, Uh, the Civil Aero uh, Medical Institute out of Oklahoma City, the FAA group, that came up uh, with a team of people uh, to Anchorage and Fairbanks and helped us with this training. And then also the uh, uh, Department of Interior who provided us with the sweat chair and loaned us the sweat chair. You know, it's it's the culmination of all these years that, you know, you've been putting effort into Alaska – uh, this year was was a, a pinnacle, if you will, with with the chair and the, the the size of our groups and things like that. That was really, really an accomplishment that I I hope we're seeing just the beginning of this. It's, oh, uh, me too. I, I I am bound determined to make it happen again next year. Uh, but uh, so Wednesday night we did a class uh, at the Anchorage FISDO that kind of prepped. Uh, 43 pilots for the water training that we would do the next day. And so we gathered everyone at the FISDO, and uh, we did an evening course uh, from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock, I think, was the time. We had to be there at 6 or earlier to set up. And uh, Cammie did a presentation on survival training, pilot survival training, and then also what to expect when they got into the sweat chair. And of course, the sweat chair, what sweat stands for is shallow water evacuation training. And it is a portable dunk chair uh, where we can simulate uh, being upset and upside down in an airplane. And so they did a, about an hour and a half presentation. Um, then we took a break and then uh, I conducted a presentation where we really focused on briefing the pilots on PFDs, uh, including all the components of PFDs, the differences uh, between different uh, PFDs that are available out there. And, you know, there's this conundrum, which was kind of the genesis of, of why I'm so big uh, I feel so passionate about us needing to do this kind of training for pilots in that one of the basic tenets of survival training is you should know how to use your safety gear before you need it. 
yeah without without training on something you're you're really it's a jump in the dark and when you've trained on something now you're you're accomplishing something that's already part of your 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 continents and it and it works it's just a huge huge difference between thinking about it and actually doing it so the the in water training is really really an important step yeah, and so, you know, I've been a big proponent of pilots wearing uh, personal flotation devices. Uh, we have brought them into our product offering as a result, and we do as many demos at trade shows where we do inflations on people as possible. But we, most people that buy a PFD or wear a PFD have never actually had to use one or never had the opportunity to use one. And that was the importance of bringing this training to Alaska. And again, I, I hope we can take this kind of training all over the country, was to give people the opportunity, pilots and crew members and family members, the opportunity to do an in-water deployment and see what it's like and then put them through exercises. Well, like you, I, I started introducing PFDs to an operation that Kathy and I owned in Louisiana, you know, 40 years ago and uh it was chipping away at a brick wall <laughs> oh we don't want to wear that oh, oh, oh but uh but over time it started making a difference and we get a tiny tiny bit of winter in louisiana compared to what you know alaska sees but uh we had a, a pilot go in the water in the winter time and that pfd was of a great assist you know, he just literally slipped and fell off a float. Not anything big and dramatic, but when you're dunked in the cold. Yeah, even having, 58 ha degree water is uh, is will suck the uh, yeah. heat out of your body very quickly. But having that PFA he made a difference, and mm -hmm. you start chipping away. I brought that that experience with me to Florida, and have been using PFDs just almost the entire time in Florida that that we've been around water flying aircraft. And I can attest to that because both of us will not appear in public doing a, a yeah. safety seminar without a PFD on, and neither one of us will get in our aircraft without them on. Uh, yeah, We've, we may have had a couple of public appearances on dry land without a PFD, but we, we by and large, that's one of our signatures that, uh, that puts us out there on promoting that item. Yeah. So, you know, providing this training where people could go in the water and see, you know, if you're in an event where you need a PFD, there's a, a really good chance that you may have a broken wrist or uh, some kind of injury, broken shoulder, broken elbow, where you can't tread water. And so one of the things we did in this water training, so we, we had three stations. We'll go back to kind of the basics. We had to get the chair in. Um, we get there and there's a bar in the double doors where we couldn't get the chair in. So we go scrambling to see if we can get permission or just do it and get a bar out of a door with security that was attached to the door and stuff like that. So we could get this in. We did set up three stations, um, in the pool. So this is Thursday. Uh, we went out, uh, to the university of Alaska's Anchorage campus and they gave us exclusive use of their pool for the afternoon. And, uh, the 43 pilots that were there Wednesday night came back on Thursday. Uh, we show up with the sweat chair, have to get it in and we have to get a raft inflated and everything else. And Cammy took, uh, 
two two sections. We divided the pilots up into groups, and we had three stations. One station was the sweat chair, uh, where they would go inverted underwater and have to unbuckle and egress out, open a door and, and get out. Um, then we had another station that Cami manned where they would uh, have people get into a raft, which is a lot more difficult than a lot of people. Well, that, that <laughs> station was more like you're, you're in the commercial um, air carrier airplane, the airplane ditches, and, and it, it included, said, okay, you're going to go out of the emergency exit over the wing. And he says, you don't walk out of there. You've got to put one foot out. You've got to duck down. You've got to leave the aircraft and that sort of thing. And uh, you, you've got to group up, gather up in the water, because if you're an individual, you're fully exposed. As a group, you've got How to support, do heat management. Yeah. How to do heat management. How to, okay, we need to move from here to there. How do we move 20 people? In, in open water and, and accomplish that. So it was really interesting uh, to get exposed to that and, and do it. And it was well-trained. It was a big piece of what what we gained in uh, in that training this year. Yeah, and typically there is on, on the survival rafts, there is a, a ladder, which is usually a nylon hoop. Uh-uh. <laughs> and it broke. <laughs> Which was great w- real world training because now people had to get into uh, the the raft without the use of this because we had a real world failure in a training environment and that meant that from that point forward everyone that was supposed to get in the raft had to do so with with a failure which I thought added to uh, the training experience. It, it was interesting because <laughs> when I made my trip into that raft without that ladder. Um, Without assistance, I wouldn't have done it. In other words, it was just we started getting a team together of what it took to make it happen, you know. And and the the coach was there; he was telling, but he wasn't doing. He was making the the native team, if you will, accomplish the task. It was very very instructive to uh, to the uh, to the teaching up there. Yeah. And then when we go to heat management, there's positions you can put your body in to reduce heat loss because it's really heat management when it comes from a water survival situation is maintaining heat and preventing the loss of heat as much as possible. And so you can do that by, again, if you're in a group of people gathering. But if you're alone, you can tuck up uh, into the, the position where you're as tight as possible. Keeping... And if you happen to bring the big hefty bag with you, yes. you can learn how to get in that as well. And, uh, and you can... You can do it. You can preserve it, and you're, you you create that little body of water around you that's yours that can accumulate your heat, and then your heat loss is reduced. It's it's a tremendous event. And so when he says the hefty bag, we're literally talking about a giant, giant black garbage, garbage bag. bag. That's it, baby. Which should be in your PFD <laughs> because uh, it is a great way to increase the amount of heat that you retain within a confined area and, and prevent the loss of that heat. Um, well, you know, when, 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 when you do water flying, one of the things you can do is where can I land so that I've got easy access to the shore? You know, it, it might be a two-minute swim or it might be a five-minute swim. It's not I can barely see shore. If you're doing some overwater stuff, and on our trip to Alaska,
hefty bag. Yeah. <laughs> on my next one, there'll be You'll one have with it. Me. You can rest <laughs> assured because you get into situations that you may not be able to reach shore. What's the current? What's the wind? There's all these sort of things. Now we have to, how do we survive the next few minutes? How can we survive the next few hours yeah. as things are developing toward a rescue and that sort of stuff? So it's it's a really, really eye-opening event. And uh, just little things that you can add, what that bag weighs is nothing. What it can contribute to your survival is huge. It's huge, yeah. And even, you know, it doesn't matter that we're flying seaplanes. Anytime you're in a single-engine seaplane flying over uh, water, I mean, you and I have done it, even cutting the panhandle in the state of Florida. Uh, you get 20 miles out, and, and I am not comfortable. And, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> Apalachicola Bay has this little little line that you get to go to heaven, and then you go to Terry's, and you're on your way. But, but uh, there's a little cut across there that seems like everybody takes, but you should prepare for that like you would a legitimate trip to the Bahamas, a true open water. So Yeah. Because uh, a failure, even in Florida water, heat management is going to be an issue over time. It doesn't take long for the the water is a very good conductor of your heat, and it's going to suck it out. Well, this was your, your anchorage. So how many people did you put through in Anchorage, the uh, the program? We put 43 through. And the third, the third station um, was our station, uh, but we put 43 pilots through the three stations, uh, first being the sweat chair, the second being the, the raft, and, and then our station. And in our station, we made everyone, uh, we, again, we did a second exposure where we went over the components of the PFD as they were on the individuals. And then we would brief them, ask them if there was anything that they were uncomfortable about, didn't understand. Then we'd put them in the deep end of the pool and make them uh, uh, tread water. And I would tell a story and and drag it out to see how long it took them to get physically exhausted. Did, did you make them tread water one-handed or one foot? Yes, and, and then we would simulate, now you have an injury. Uh, so now I'm going to continue to tell my story, but you can only have one limb to do so. And then we would allow them to deploy the PFD. Um, and then we would do a series of exercises with swimming with the PFD, what's the easiest way to cover large distances with it, swimming backwards, and then also making them d- control the inflation, deflate and manually reinflate the PFD. And then we gave everyone an opportunity to use the heat bottle, which is the helicopter emergency evacuation device. It's a little self-contained breathing bottle that you can attach to your PFDs. For, for, the, for the divers, is this very similar to what they call spare air? Spare air, yes. It's the same company, just different packaging for aviation versus commercial diving uh, or, or recreational diving. And so uh, the heat bottle is an air source, gives you about 30 breaths of air. And the important part of that demonstration is showing people if you're in an underwater situation where you have to evacuate, the last breath you took largely may have been knocked out of you, and now you have to get out. And if you can breathe, uh, not only are your chances of survival greater, but your comfort level of knowing that you have time to calm down and get out of your seatbelt, get the doors out, um, just increases. I, that was my first exposure to the uh, to that device, and I'm I'm not a trained diver. Um, that device 
is game-changing on egress from from a lot of situations, and uh, it still requires training. You need to get in a pool with it. You need to maybe get some limited dive-type instruction to make that uh, a tool that you're going to have confidence in, not only the tool, but in your ability to utilize its its mm-hmm. its, uh, its characteristics. Yeah. So uh, we put everyone through the training, and um, I think uh, again we forty three people. Uh, they all got wings credit, and we are going to experience this again in Fairbanks. But everyone, number one, said it was incredibly eye opening. Um, it was incredibly beneficial training and that 100% of the 43 would come back if we did it again next year and that they, they were very impressed. And we also had the president of the Alaska Airmen's Association go through it, uh, in Anchorage as well, which was great to have, uh, Steve Radcliffe, uh, go through the course and, and also see the value of it and get his feedback as someone who's engaged with another nonprofit advocacy organization like ours in Alaska. Well, that was, that was an addition. Yes. So we're only up to day four out of a 21 day trip, uh, day five. Uh, we've, we've already had to, uh, rinse all the PFDs off, inflate them, try to dry them, get all the chlorine out of them. So they last because the chlorine just eats PFDs. Uh, then we had to pack up and drive 400 miles up to Fairbanks, uh, and of course, we always do a kind of traditional stop in Talkeetna for lunch along the way and uh, make our way up there. In, in some ways, I did not miss that trip this year, Steve, <laughs> but in other ways, I did. It's, it's always an exciting trip to, uh, to look at that landscape going by up to, that, up to Fairbanks. Yeah, it's a wonderful drive uh, going past uh, McKinley when you could see it. Uh, it's usually snow covered when we're doing this trip, which is in late April, uh, beginning of May. And uh, it is, you know, it's a, a grueling day. And at the same time, it's a day I always look forward to because yes. it's so incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And uh, Well, we, we did. Well, actually, we did not <laughs> make <laughs> Fairbanks on that day. We made it a few minutes after midnight <laughs> arriving in Fairbanks. So. So after, I think we got up to Fairbanks, uh, this is, uh, what, Thursday, uh, or no, Friday. Uh, so we're Friday, uh, our fifth day, make that drive up to Fairbanks. Uh, we got up there about 7, 7.30 at night, checked in with the FAA, uh, and then uh, you guys arrived um, just after midnight into Fairbanks and joined us yep. this year. That's, uh, we stepped out. We stepped in the aircraft basically in Florida. We stepped out of the airplane in Fairbanks. It was a uh, a climate shock. <laughs> yes, I think it was about twenty two degrees. So going from eighty some close to ninety degrees to twenty two degrees. Yeah, and uh, you know, and of course, I had to bring some t- torture into it because um, it, the aurora was firing. Yes, this is this is Steve McCauley with his <laughs> his feet on fire. He cannot stop. Anytime, and then there's a certain percentage for Aurora, and we got it. You yeah, know, we that, did. That was the exciting thing, you know. So. And literally, we were right next to the the uh, Alaska pipeline, which was so cool too, because it just adds to the story and the yeah. experience to be literally where you can see the Alaska pipeline, and you look up, and uh, you're looking at the Aurora, which was the first time I had seen it at that intensity. Yeah, uh, well, that that's was, that was that was nice. That was that was a hit. 
But we're now at like 2.30 in the morning, and we have to be at the FAA the next morning at 8 o'clock. So just to keep things... And you had been traveling all day. Uh, I managed to stay awake through that gathering with the FAA because now I'm, I'm getting the same training that was given the day before the, uh, uh, the pool training in Anchorage, and, uh, as well as how many people did we have there at the, uh, at the Fairbanks gathering? The first uh, day, uh, which was Saturday, April 29th, we did uh, 23 pilots. Okay. So we met uh, at the FISDO at 8 o'clock. So again, we had been out to at least 2.30 in the morning. Uh, we were at the FISDO at 8 o'clock setting up. I think uh, the pilot showed up at 9 o'clock. We started the training properly at 9 o'clock, and we condensed it down to two and a half hours by 11.30, uh, Cammie had done their portion of the training. Uh, I had done my portion of the training. We broke at 1130 so everyone could get a quick hour and a half to reposition to the University of Alaska's Fairbanks pool facility and eat some lunch in the meantime. Right. And uh, then we, uh, we grabbed some lunch and ran to the pool to make sure everything was set up. Carter had been over there all morning with the Cami guys, part of the Cami team setting up. And um, we did re- repeated the anchorage. Yeah, and and this is where I actually I was one of the pilots that went through on that first day, you know. And the the organization was good; everything was there. The stations worked very very well on the on the circle of events for that. So uh, so again, uh, another group through. Yep. And then you had another group the following day, as I <laughs> we went back on Sunday and repeated for another seventeen pilots. We had limited the class uh, theoretically to twenty people because, again, this is the first time the Seaplane Pilots Association has ever done this kind of training, and to put forty three people through in Anchorage was was amazing. But we didn't know how many people we could put through in Fairbanks. And so we limited the class to theoretically 20. We did 23 and 17. Uh, but I think we, we proved that we can do more than that. Uh, but it also was nice because it was a manageable group of people. Uh, we had a lot of people say we wanted to get in. The class was full. We couldn't get in. Uh, and so we can't wait next year. Please, we want to sh- sign up early. But we did the same thing, three stations. Uh, one for the sweat chair, one for the raft and the heat management, and then one for the PFDs. And, uh, I think we went to about four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon to get everyone through. And it, and like I say, it was smooth. One of the nice things about that is, is we really weren't hurried to get it accomplished. So that, that made it a, a, a good event. And you were actually in the water long enough to say, hey, this is really happening. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, a couple of hours for the the people going through the training. I mean, this was three to four hours in the water uh, for the most part. That's right. You know, you and I went through, I don't know if you participated in January. We went to to, uh, New Orleans for a meeting and then on down to Homa. We took our board members through the the training down in Homa. So it it, had only been a few months since I'd done it, but our time in the water for that training was very limited. So it it made life a lot easier in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. Allowed the stress to set in and the, the... the heat loss to really kind of take, even though we were indoors in Alaska uh, in a heated pool, it was still. Uh, it's, it's still, yeah, that's not your 82 <laughs> degree pool. <Yeah. laughs> 
So uh, again, we we got a class through on Saturday, 23 people uh, doing this. And again, as you said, we were able to take time. I think all three stations, especially in Fairbanks, we had time to just take as much time as we needed with the individuals to make sure that they felt comfortable with what they had. They had achieved their goals and we had made sure that they had achieved the goals we had for them, uh, which was nice. That's good. Uh, so we repeated this on day six and did the, the ground training in the morning or the, the classroom training in the morning and then the pool all day again. Oh, actually, uh, it was uh, day seven, uh, Sunday, April 30th, and went through it. Again, all of the people that participated and all, we did 73 pilots, 76 pilots. Uh, they all got wings credit, which was great. And again, huge th- thanks to Cami. Um, for coming out from Oklahoma City, the FAA for helping us with that, uh, OAS for providing us with the dunk chair, and uh, then Anchorage FISDO and uh, Fairbanks FISDO for, and yeah, the no, University of Alaska. The, the, it truly, truly was a, a, a big team event yeah, to make this, this happen, and the uh, results were, were evident. So now we're on day eight of our trip. You and I have to get down and go over because we have had such a busy schedule and we are also perfectionist and care about what we put out there. Uh, we spent all day Monday, May 1st, uh, going through uh, developing our safety seminars and and refining them and picking them apart with a fine-tooth comb. And that, that was pretty much all day sitting working on uh, on the presentations. Yeah, that that's um, – before I left, I'd had a, a month and a half of extreme busy. You, you faced the same thing, so we usually end up with a few last-minute things to do and uh, – that's where we uh, we got to polish that and prepare it so that the presentation would would go well. Well, again, we had to clean all the PFDs, uh, rinse all the chlorine out of them, get them reinflated to dry them, uh, and uh, get all that set on Tuesday morning. And then Tuesday evening, what has come to become a regular event for us now is uh, doing our evening course at Fairbanks International Airport at the fire department. And again, that's a co-op that we do with the Fairbanks FISDO. And uh, this year, I think I think we started out six or seven years ago. We may have had like 20 people in our Something first. Something like <laughs> that. No, and, it, and the room was full. It, it really was a, a dramatic difference that has accumulated over the years and this year it was really noticeable and we had 58 people and standing room only yeah no, uh, it was a great great gathering good event and the things that we're doing at that event is beginning the season uh safety considerations so i spent a lot of time talking about the skills and the things that you should be thinking about the disciplines you should be uh reviewing and working on as as a pilot who has been on skis or hasn't been flying all uh, floats all winter Six months of non-float flying, these are the things that you need to consider uh, before going back with passengers and, and to get yourself ready to go. And then you spend a lot of time talking about the regular maintenance, and, and let's talk about that because... Well, yeah, maintenance is, is, a, is a varied bird. There, there are so many levels of maintenance. It's, in many ways, it's like, like operating an airplane. You know, you've got a, you got a pre-flight you do that's not flying, but crucial to the success of the planned flight and that sort of thing maintenance is the same way we have to it, the inspection has to be done you know and and we determine what needs to be done uh 
our experience, past experience, some things need a little bit of a look at them. Some things need an in-depth look at them to, mm-hmm. to be able to find out what goes on. We talked about this year we added something to the component. I'd been really heavy on corrosion. Corrosion is the big C in general aviation. Yep. These airplanes, you know, we take all that ore out of the ground and we turn it into really high-grade steel and, and lots of aluminum. And the very first thing it wants to do is crawl back in the ground in its original state. So we have to preserve and protect to uh, to do that. Uh, one thing that we added a little bit this year was fatigue because these airplanes, as they age, even though they were designed to standards that didn't have fatigue programs, we're beginning to see that fatigue can enter into uh, failures on these airplanes. And the objective of inspection is to detect that failure before you've got a catastrophic failure. So yeah. uh, so we have to, to look at these things. And, and all our aircraft are aging. You know, we've got some new airplanes out there, but they are a really tiny piece of the uh, GA uh, number of aircraft out there with the average air age of general aviation aircraft exceeding 30 years. How old's the car you drive, Steve? Yeah, <laughs> we were talking about that earlier. So I actually have an old car. Our, our primary car is a 2011, and by a lot of standards, that's an old car. That's right. My truck is a 2002, but, you know, that's not average in the United States. That is that is correct. But the, uh, you know, but you know, airplanes come into my shop that were made in the 60s. So, I was going to uh, say, so my first airplane that I still have is a 1947. Right. And my Super Cub, which is my primary airplane, is a 1964. Yeah, and one of, one of my personal aircraft is a 49 Piper Clipper. So, you know, these aircraft are, they've been around the block and we really have to look and care about them. So. Yeah. And we were talking about that with, you know, how many, we were talking, the last 185 came off of the line in the mid 80s. And so just for sake of conversation, say it's 35, the last 180, the last, the last one, not one, one. not one that had been in production for 25 years previous to that. Right. But the last one. So how many people today have a daily driver that is 35 years old? Well, a lot of people in Alaska do. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's an observation I'll make. And, and it, it is it is evident because this year, later in our talk, we're going to cover another trip where we went to a, another part of Alaska, and we got um, an, uh, an exposure to their complete operation, you know, from, from walking up to the counter to uh, uh, getting off the airplane and going back into the, the non-airport environment and everything in between there. Um, but maintenance was one of their big, big strong yeah, suits. They absolutely. had a tremendous maintenance department uh, to be able to do that. Although this operation, by and large, was a year-round operation. They yeah. weren't uh, seasonal. They that, weren't, yeah, so they yeah. were down in southeast, which was different. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and that, I think, goes to the, the extent of this trip as well, where we ex- expanded and extended our reach within the state of Alaska. Going up to Fairbanks, seaplane flying is at most 
five months a year um, where the water is soft and it's seasonal. Even when we go in May, you know, we were leaving at the end of May. The water was still frozen still on frozen. Lake Hood That's when right. we left. And this is mid-May. Right. And Lake Hood is the first water that goes out, that that unfree, you know, that becomes soft again so you can use it. And the problem is Lake Hood is open. Uh, when it opens, say June 1st, because I know it snowed after we left as well. Um, but when Hood opens, everything else is still largely frozen on the inland waterways. Well, it, it's an advantage, if you will, for Hood in that, these people can do a little bit of recurrent training, yeah, and they can they can get back in the saddle and and do it, and literally just you know a few hours, uh, you know, just a couple of trips can renew and refresh so many things. A lot of these guys are are very very experienced pilots, having done it every year, started this spring routine and and that, and if if you can actually make spring routine part of a structured ritual then you're going to get more out of it you're going to be more prepared when you actually there's a start. whole nother podcast the rituals of flying and yeah. having the disciplines of ritual yeah. which will what, serve you very well whether it's maintenance or your piloting what was it what's the difference between being being current and competent you know in in those uh in, in a given given airplane. So, Big difference so, uh, between currency and competency, and, so, and we can't confuse the two. So anywhere, you know, I, when John Pratt asked me to do my, my first Alaska um, safety presentation, I said, John, I, I, I can't be qualified to do that. I'm not an Alaska guy, but John convinced me that, that my history of, of – all those years doing saltwater maintenance, coastal maintenance, and that sort of thing was close enough to the Alaska environment that I could at least contribute something to that, that, that part of the world and, and what we do. What's happening, though, is Alaska is now starting to contribute to my maintenance mm-hmm. that I do in Florida. So it's been it's starting, Full circle. To, starting to make that circle. So it was really, really exciting. And then this year, uh, when we when we wrapped things up in Anchorage, we uh, we made arrangements to get a little more south to do the trade show in Palmer. But then we also went on. But let's cover our Palmer event, and then let's see what our, our next big step was. Yeah, and, and uh, so, again, we're 46 mm-hmm. minutes into the podcast. You guys can get an idea. This is a 21-day trip. Uh, up to this point, we're, I mean, we're only – into uh day nine <laughs> so uh it is pretty comprehensive uh day 10 wednesday uh may 3rd we have to pack all this stuff up including the sweat chair the uh uh, uh raft uh for the faa uh all of our pfds which again have had to be inflated rinsed and everything else get all this into two vehicles we had uh pickup truck to support uh the uh sweat chair and then of course our minivan and we have to get back down to palmer which this year we did the inland route i uh, went down to tote which was again like an eight or nine hour drive that's correct it, it was it was something um it also reminded me having made the trip up last june following the alcan up that i didn't get to see all the alcan i I diverted, if you will, um, from Whitehorse in, in another direction. 
but from Fairbanks, which was the termination of what they wanted to accomplish building that Elkan, down to what was the junction there? Uh, there was Grand Junction and Toke. Um, very small. I think it was Grand Junction. Yeah, and I may be we'll have to go back and look at that. But 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 yeah, that that was a a big piece of it. And again, it it reminded me that the environment that aircraft are being operated in Alaska, that environment hasn't changed in hundreds or even thousands of years. We have gotten more people there. We've gotten more access. We've got more equipment and that sort of thing. But the things that are challenging us haven't changed. They're still just as severe and and really, really are important to uh, respect on many levels. You look out uh, as long you know, when we were going from Toke over to Palmer, um, there's an area there where you just have these beautiful scenic overlooks of the St. Elias mountain ranges. Yeah. And you feel so small and insignificant. And it really is humbling uh, to do that drive and to see Alaska like this, where whether you're flying over these regions or driving, where you get a real appreciation for the distances. When you drive for nine hours to get between you know, one population center to another. And then you go when you see these massive, you know, landscapes that just go on endlessly yeah. with, with snow covered mountains. And you've just, again, I, I wish more people would have the opportunity to not only see that, but also to have the moment of reflection the, when the, you're looking at that. <laughs> the Alaskans are chipping away at it, but what is it? What was the percentage we heard of the people that live in Anchorage? The percentage of the Alaskan population? Yeah. It's, it's like 40% of the Alaskan population is in one city. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, Which is they're, amazing. They're, they're, they're chipping away, but it's truly still a oh, frontier to, that is challenging. So we get to Palmer, uh, which is where the Great Alaska Aviation Gathering is on Wednesday night. Uh, but we had to get down to Anchorage, go drop stuff off, go pick stuff up for the trade show, uh, which is about a hour drive realistically from where we were staying in Palmer down to Anchorage, hour drive back, uh, go to dinner. And then I get an invitation to go to a local event at Lake Hood at Steve Ratcliffe's hangar. Uh, which was an opportunity I was not going to miss to go just spend time with local pilots. And uh, hats off to Steve Ratcliffe for inviting me uh, and getting to go uh, to this and spend some time uh, with their airplanes and with the local pilots. Uh, but that was trip number two to Anchorage on the day that we had driven nine hours yeah. in the first place. <laughs> So yeah. add another four hours driving to, to that. Um, and uh, uh, got back. And then Friday, of course, is show setup. Yep. Um, and, and, and actually show setup went pretty nice, though. It, yeah. it was not onerous. We had a good crew, and, and it just came together pretty nicely there. So uh, it, it made that, that day sort of a relief. It was busy, but it wasn't, wasn't too bad. So. And this was the first year that the Seaplane Pilots Association had been a gold sponsor of the Great Alaska Aviation Gathering, which was a good, again, establishing uh, a larger presence in Alaska, which was great. And uh, we had to then go back to Anchorage, though, to drop off scuba tanks and other stuff that we had rented um, and take the sweat chair back to the uh, OAS uh, 
to drop it off with them and to take all those resources back. So again, tr- setting up for the trade show, running another uh, trip back to Anchorage and back. And, and it's funny because it, it's you yeah. you just you we, just summed we, it up you were yawning <laughs> we, we, we didn't have any trouble sleeping when it was time to sleep on this trip yeah. so uh saturday comes uh we we work the great alaska aviation gathering which is number one of the events i look forward more than anything in and uh out of our yearly schedule um great people great opportunity to get uh spend time with the locals and we actually had the twin b which had been in your hangar uh not, not that many days before that not that yeah. many days in here in florida right uh and uh, uh martin who purchased it uh flew it from bartow up to palmer and made it for the he was there for the trade show with one of five remaining twin b's wow. that's right it was it was a, a unique big thing i i met martin in florida when he's doing the initial looks at the airplane and that sort of thing and there's always a little details of prepping a trip for that trip plucking an airplane for a trip of that nature and by and large everything went well it, it was it was a long trip <laughs> the twin b is not the fastest stallion in the uh, in the corral and uh, but it made it it's going to do a wonderful mission while it's up here in alaska so yeah and and so it was on display which was wonderful and again the feedback i think that we were saying during the uh trade show was really phenomenal as far as again uh, the value that we're bringing uh, to the state and to the pilots in the state. And then the people that had gone through the training coming back, uh, again, giving us comments on the training uh, was was very positive to see. And it gives us a chance to see the vendors, uh, the helmet suppliers, which um, especially people flying Super Cubs, but even 185 pilots up in Alaska, more and more adopting helmets, which is great to see from a safety standpoint you know again we're so big about preaching safety from our perspective i don't wear a helmet and i can tell you i was shopping for a helmet Um, and again we talk about the florida impact on alaska Uh, the manufacturer that is kind of the chosen manufacturer for the helmets uh, is based here in st augustine florida (laughs) wow you know that that reminds me i've got a, a j3 in my shop right now that an individual bought so that he can train his children to fly it did not have any shoulder harnesses in it Mm -hmm. and looking at a lot of airplanes i wanted something for these young people that was more intuitive than the straps hanging from the ceiling so i've spent many an hour uh, actually an idea that came from another person but putting a, a a single shoulder over a nursery reel in the airplane that is very intuitive and very easy to use. I just saw where a bunch of Broncos are being recalled because it's not easy mm-hmm. to fasten the seatbelt. So if, if, that's, if that's a reason for a vehicle to be recalled, then we surely want to have um, shoulder restraints or, that are easy to use in, a, in an airplane. And this is something that doesn't really modify the airplane any structurally but it is adds to it. So it's a, a great experience and um, something that can maybe go to another part of the world. And that's what these trips are so good for in this personal touch with the pilots that I've been so big on and that thankfully you've been joining me on so many of these trips, uh, yep. also getting to talk to the pilots, to go out into their environment and experiencing this and seeing where 
where injuries and fatalities are happening, listening to them and, and having them tell you the stories of this, this is what physically happened. And, and yeah. here's what, ha- here's the guy that survived and here's what his helmet looked like. Imagine if he didn't have the helmet on. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, it gave us a chance. We get to talk to the vendors and the manufacturers like that and get to deploy some of the tactics that they're already using to enhance our safety efforts, which is great. We did a state of the seaplane seminar as well. Uh, Bill Rusk, uh, one of our field directors and uh, volunteers in Alaska, did a presentation on the Alaska Cabins website which we are currently rebuilding uh, that Tom Bass built and we took ownership of. And um, just, again, great, great time at the Alaska. If you have not been to the Great Alaska Aviation Gathering, you should put it on your bucket list of things to do. And while you're there, uh, ask, uh, call, call us and, and ask us for some ideas of things you may want to do when you go to Alaska. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, great, it's a great walk around uh, it's it's hard not to get involved with so many of the booths that it uh, is is truly uh, the great Alaska experience. Yeah. So Sunday, uh, work the trade show all day, tear the trade show down, get the trade show back to Anchorage. It and unload. went down quicker than it went up. <laughs> and had one of the best dinners I have ever had uh, at the at Cafe Paris. Yes. Any restaurant in the world. Uh, that was the best steak dinner I have ever had. I'm now trying to maneuver my son to get up to Alaska with me, and Cafe Paris is going to be on, <laughs> be the, on trip. the trip. Next day, we have to drop off the uh, truck first thing in the morning, uh, then pack up our stuff, and then we get on a flight down to Juneau. Uh, uh, the first time I've been down to southeast Alaska, uh, and the first time the Seaplane Pilots Association has really extended our reach down to southeast Alaska, and again, had been on my list of things to accomplish for the association for a long time um i have to really hats off uh juno is is a unique place uh it's the state capital of alaska and you cannot get there by car uh, there are no just, roads just to the state simple. capital that's right <laughs> i did notice there are special airline rates if you're going there for legislative reasons yes <laughs> seriously there so was it, yeah, yeah very discounted rates yeah uh but the only way to get to the state capital of alaska is by boat or by airplane uh, you cannot drive there and uh we had arranged with alaska seaplanes uh to get uh spend some time with them and they just rolled out the red carpet and thanks to everyone there uh, for doing that. Uh, they have an amazing operation. Like you said, they're unique because in Southeast, they can actually operate yeah. year round. Uh, over 15 aircraft and about a 50 50 split of seaplanes and uh, land airplanes. Yeah. It, it's. You're, you're there, and you're after a little while in uh, in Juneau, you realize that, you know, your, your driving adventure is somewhat <laughs> limited it's about 14 miles <laughs> that's right and if you're gonna if you're gonna go anywhere you've got to be on a boat or you're going to be in an airplane yeah <laughs> and it was it was eye-opening you know that the, the amount that you know the population uses air to accomplish uh you know basic everyday basic things. everyday everyday things it's uh it's an incredible place so the team at alaska seaplanes literally uh gave us an all-day uh 
acclimation, I guess, to their operation is what I would say. Uh, we toured um, their freight facility, which was amazing. Yeah. And they're building a new one. Uh, and these guys are carrying like 10,000 pounds of mail a day. Uh, it's actually one of our previous podcasts, so you can listen to that one to, to learn more about it. Uh, but uh, they rolled out the red carpet. I think it, it was yeah, they, fascinating. They, they've got refrigerated holding. They've got live animals. Live <laughs> animals to deal with. It's just it's 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 a wide open uh, uh, freight operation. But it it was managed when we got to talk to some of the people that that did it, both the workers and the, and the supervisors and. It, it's just really, really got some organization. And, and although this was Alaska Seaplanes, you look around, there are other operators doing similar operations, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody gets a niche, you know, with this is just a nature of business. But uh, it, it was really, really uh, wide open. And then we got to get a personal experience. Yeah, we got to uh, Toby Ortega uh, yeah. took us out in a 206. And again, thanks to Alaska Seaplanes for their amazing hospitality because we we toured you know before the flight we went down to the float pond and toured the float pond and i have to stress you can literally see the mendenhall glacier from the runway at juno international airport That's which right. is amazing it is amazing. Uh, you can be at the float pond you can be on the ramp and you can literally see uh the mendenhall glacier from the airport and um we went out in the 206 uh we did a wonderful flight scene flight uh tried yep. to get a, a feel for what there is in Juno and the kinds of missions to, to a non-Alaskan pilot or, or, or someone with no Bush experience. This was a real eye opener of where they operate, how they operate. They do things that 99.99% of the pilots in the world don't do. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really an incredible trip None of this is in in hindsight. None of it was was hair raising or anything like that. But it was very different, done extremely professionally, and just a a whole new environment to operate aircraft in. Talking about the silt, uh, how difficult it is to judge the water depth, uh, and how that water depth constantly moves between spring melt and and other seasons now where you where you were two days ago may not be accessible now yeah. you know today so it, it's just a it's a very dynamic environment that they they work in going in through very narrow passes where you have three thousand foot vertical walls on either side of you and going into a pretty confined lake that was still yeah. frozen and unusable for floats uh, but two of our Alaska cabins uh, that are on our website that we're rebuilding right now were on the lake. So it was the first time we had had an opportunity to see those and also see the kind of amazing locations that these cabins are in. Yeah, uh, they, they, it's it's just it's part of that frontier that you have access to now via those cabins. It's, it's a, a wonderful opportunity for people who can access them with the seaplane. So we'll be doing a future podcast with uh, Bill Rusk, who's actually out in Alaska right now. He's on a six-week tour of these cabins and taking new photos for us to update the website with and creating new, you know, the set of documentation that we provide for each cabin on the website. And he has his experimental Super Cub flying through Alaska right now. And 
when he gets back at the end of the season, we'll get him on the podcast and do one just on these Alaska cabins. We actually got to find one that was salt water that we got to land at. (laughs) Well, and and that was uh, because one of the things we did on the trip is we stopped. Yeah. You know, and we stopped at a a very typical location for a seaplane to make a make a call at and uh and there was a like you said a saltwater cabin uh at that location it was a it was a very interesting uh, event yeah so great stuff and uh then ended up coming back and we weren't gonna let toby off the hook that easy we had to do a podcast with him and again because we don't cram as much as we can get into a day on these trips <laughs> that's right uh and then the following day um we ended up meeting with the Juno Fisdo, who again was very gracious. Uh, we had never had any communication or relationship with these guys. Again, had been on my list for a long time. And they gave us a spectacular morning, spent the morning with us, called everyone in. We've already, we've exchanged some safety uh, program yep. literature between the two. I've got a, a package that I'm getting ready to send back to them on, on something that, that they may want to get a little experience with and that sort of thing. So it's, I, I love the, the FAA has been fantastic in, in Alaska in trying to exchange information to, it's a, a really open door uh, situation that's going on there. Yeah. And their work with us has been spectacular and it was unique because I thought we would be coming in, giving them a presentation and they were like, Oh no, we have a, we've, we've, we've already made a presentation to provide you with. And this is a great opportunity. You know, why Why are we meeting with the FISDO and Juno? Because we need to know what they're seeing from a safety perspective, the challenges that they're experiencing with the operators and the pilots, and how we can add value to that and assist in making the connection between the FAA and the operators and the pilots and how we can add value to ultimately make a safer community. Yeah, they, they've accumulated a lot of safety data that, that- – um, makes it easy to say, hey, if we used helmets, yes. we could potentially save this many lives a year. If we did this, we'll get this result from it. So it's uh, they're they're uh, they're an active organization trying to contribute to that safety level, and it's a it's a great meeting. Yeah, and the FISDO manager was a passionate SPA member, yeah. <laughs> and he was very quick to tell us that. And uh, again, I, I thought it was impressive because almost every photo in the FISDO uh, was of a seaplane. That's right. No, it, <laughs> Which it, is unusual. That was, that was a special spot to visit. <laughs> so uh, from there, uh, we actually took an afternoon off and went out to the Mindenhall Glacier and explored yep. and went out to the waterfall uh, out there, which is great. And uh, next day, packed up. Uh, flew back to Anchorage, went, <laughs> spent the night, spent the night, packed, went back to John Pratt's hangar, did the final packing and distribution of, uh, of, stuff. of stuff on that and, uh, and got on the airplane and came home. That's right. So here you go. 21 days in Alaska. Uh, we, uh, trained 73 to 76 pilots, I think is the final number in the water training. Uh, we made some new lifetime members along the way. We gave five uh, workshops or safety seminars or training events 
in a 21-day period uh, while we were there. Uh, all of the pilots that went through these received wings credit. We had three board members, John Pratt, Harry Shannon, yourself, and Matt Sigfrinius, uh, all engaged on the trip, and myself and uh, uh, Carter. And uh, we spent quite a bit of time with Alaska Seaplanes. We worked with three different FISDOs. Uh, two other government organizations. It was, uh, how much can you do in 21 days? (laughs) I want to point this out to you, Steve, that the rest period of getting back from Alaska is over. (laughs) We literally have to start working on the next trip to Alaska. Yes. Uh, So I am thrilled. Uh, and, And it's nice to see a board member engaged on these trips or multiple board members engaged on these trips. And it's also... Um, it's an honor. I, it's a duty and it's an honor to be able to, to feel successful that we did what we intended to do, which was go impact people in a positive way. But it, it's the, the, the flip side is, and I've, I'm starting to get selfish about wanting to attend these events <laughs> because I'm still flying about 300 hours a year in, in water airplanes and, you know, in that process doing training, uh, it's not uncommon for me to have a thousand to two thousand water landings in a year. So, being prepared for water operations from a safety standpoint is really important to me. Both in that I want to see it get shared, and both that I want to participate in that training. So, it, it's something that's that's a it's a it's a two sided door for uh, for the people in our organization and the people that are out there as seaplane pilots. Yeah. Well, a couple closing thoughts. Number one, I hope you've enjoyed a a rather long podcast, but hopefully an informative one, and also some insight into what we as an organization are doing for the seaplane community and the kind of energy and the level and the impact. And my goal is to expand what we did this year in Alaska and take it nationwide and to keep providing these kind of events and expanding these events in Alaska as well. Yeah, we... We may have indeed sorted something. (laughs) We're also going to have to work a way to keep it going. Yeah, and I would like to thank the donors to the Seaplane Foundation because uh, this trip is largely going to be uh, paid for from our donors to the Seaplane Foundation. Uh, They are expensive trips. Uh, This training, these five different training sessions we did in total, um, the three uh, water training sessions that we did, uh, all of the cylinders for the PFDs that are one-use cylinders, uh, all the mouthpieces, the air tanks, the r- truck rental to move the – all of that was paid for by the Seaplane uh, Foundation through our donors, and there was no cost to the pilots that no, went through the program. There wasn't a single cost other than their time to be able to participate in this training. So, again – Hats off to the donors that make this possible. Here, I'd like here. to thank all of the pilots that took time out of their days and their schedules to take safety as a priority. And because they're not only taking it as a priority, they're going to start passing it on as a priority. So our group is going to grow, even though they're, they're, the number that we expose to are going to get multipliers. So. Absolutely. And then Anchorage FISDO, Fairbanks FISDO, Juno FISDO, 
uh, OAS in Anchorage. Alaska seaplanes. Alaska seaplanes. Uh, the CAMI guys from Oklahoma City, from yep. the FAA. I'd like to thank everyone that made this possible. And uh, Harry, to you for investing now, you know, half a dozen times, uh, weeks of your year, and all, and the fact that you pay your way through all of this as well, that doesn't impact the budget. Um, you know, you're investing uh, as a board member, very real, tangible time, energy, and money into our efforts. And thank you. I'm very, very fortunate, Steve. And it, it, in the over 50 years that I've been associated uh, as, as a pilot and, and, and more than that as a mechanic, I'm starting to, I have the time and the willingness to give some of that back. Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. I, I just don't it's, know where to uh, leave this off because it, 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 doing this podcast in an hour and 12 minutes was kind of like the whirlwind of 21 days. So, <laughs> Well, you know, when I got back, I'm so, oh, I'm so glad that's over, you know, and for a few days you're out there and you're saying, okay, that's done, that's done, and then, well, what are we going to do next year? <laughs> so it starts coming back. Next so. year is going to be four weeks. That's right. <laughs> it keeps growing. But uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of uh, Water Flying. We hope you uh, share it. And we'll keep bringing you more. And we're going to try to keep them going on a weekly basis. But we have been very busy. We are rebuilding websites. We're getting ready for Air Venture right now. Uh, we're putting out the next issue of Water Flying Magazine. We've got tons of stuff going on behind the scenes. We're trying to get these podcasts out. We'll continue to get them out. They are a very high priority for us. And you guys have told us that. So uh, we're going to continue to do it. But... Uh, uh, we wanted to make sh uh, sure that you guys kind of had an idea of the kinds of things your organization uh, is doing for you. And that's one of the, the objectives of this podcast is to keep you guys informed of what the Seaplane Pilots Association is doing for the members. And uh, again, uh, thanks to everyone. And uh, until next time, uh, fly safe, fly often, and tune in for the next episode. Take care. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.